Welcome to the Commentary Magazine podcast for today, May 10th, 2022. I am Noah Rothman, the Associate Editor of Commentary Magazine, and with us, as always, is Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, Noah. Uh, senior Writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, Noah. And um, Contributing Editor of Commentary Magazine, and our friend, Eli Lake. Eli, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kind of a sad day at Commentary Magazine today. Uh, Midge Dector, an intellectual giant, um, very influential uh, uh, conservative uh, cultural critic uh, and and liberal cultural critic uh, over the course of her storied career. Also uh, the matriarch of the Podhoritz family, mother to John, wife of Norman Podhoritz, passed away yesterday, just shy of her 95th birthday, an incredible life and legacy. Um, John is obviously going to be out for the remainder of the week, and he is in our thoughts, and the family is in our thoughts and prayers. Um, We um, were performing a a retrospective on some of the work she had done for commentary over the many decades that she had worked in intellectual life and contributed to intellectual life, and um, there's too much to recount in this or any other podcast, Uh, but we'll be doing a little look back over the course of the week. Um, I plucked out one essay that she had written, uh, examining, uh, sort of critiquing and taking apart, I guess in the modern parlance, we'd call it a takedown, but it really wasn't. It was just an analysis, but a critical analysis of Irving Howe's intellectual journey, which doubles as a history of the uh, intellectual evolution of the American left in the mid 20th century. It's a fascinating document. Um, of, of, of a particularly interesting and influential political movement, um, which was just married to its own insularity in many ways and deeply invested in a theoretical understanding of life uh, that bore no resemblance to the actual reality of what people genuinely lived. And that theme uh, translates throughout much of, uh, much of Midge's uh, work uh, trying to, trying to uh, mend the divides between the abstract theoretical interpretation of how life and how uh, society should organize themselves uh, from the perspective of an intellectual and why that was dashed against the rocks of the reality of lived experience uh, so often. And, and it is our experience today, very much the same is that intellectual life just tends to uh, divorce itself from the conditions that we experience on the ground. And that has a tendency to frustrate intellectuals to the point that they either you know, reconcile themselves with reality or retreat deeper into their own solipsism. Um, and it's just, it was a fascinating read and um, really interesting uh, perspective from somebody who, is, who had made a career of being an incisive critic of that kind of solipsistic impulse. Christine, you had, um, you had a, a much deeper experience with Midge's work than, than I did. I would. I am not using hyperbole to say she had a sort of transformative effect on me at a very crucial moment in my life. I was a, in the 1990s. I was in a graduate history program. My minor field was feminist history, and I took a feminist theory course with uh, Betsy Fox Genovese, who later became kind of a mentor as well and sat on my committee and everything. But in that feminist theory course, which I think it was my first year as a grad student. It was largely women's studies majors, very lit crit heavy. It was a lot of theory. It was a a lot of pretty radical feminist notions taken for granted as being the only way to go forward for women. And I raised a sort of mild mannered objection at one point during the seminar discussion and got smacked down. 
And after that class, Betsy came up to me and said, you need to read these essays by this woman named Midge Dector, because this is good. You're going to understand better why you got smacked down and also how to respond. And it just I just voraciously read everything I could get my hands on that she had written um, her. The book in particular that was so striking and so prescient to me when it comes to anything related to women's issues and, and in the broader sense, the kind of culture war over the family. Um, her 1972 book about chastity, the new chastity collection of her essays. But some of these essays she wrote in the 1960s at the height of the feminist movement, she was the only one among, well, maybe a handful of people saying, you know, we really should think through the logical consequences of what some of these arguments are. And, and also puncturing this idea that the feminist movement spoke for the needs and desires of all women. She was doing that from day one. And it's, it's easy to forget how radical a position that was because we have a lot of, we have an entire right-wing industrial entertainment complex that does that 24 seven on cable news now, but then it was extremely rare. And to do it not for entertainment, but for just true intellectual, genuine intellectual courage it took to do that. And again, as you said, Noah, the most powerful thing was that she wrote about real lives. She wrote about how women live their real lives, the domestic problems, you know, how, how different solutions for that. And always, always skeptical of the idea of top-down solutions and particularly state-sponsored top-down solutions and this deep and abiding skepticism of ideal, ideological answers to practical human problems. And as a young woman at the time, I just I just remember reading and rereading these essays and going, this is incredible. Like she's actually attacking this thing that I assumed we were all supposed to agree was good for women. And that was such a crucial intellectual moment. And it has been built on by conservative women since then. And um, she should always get her due for that. On, on a personal note, I had the opportunity to interact with her over the years and at one point to interview her. Um, she's just a lovely human being. <laughs> she's just one of these really nice, warm people who makes you immediately feel like you're one of her family. And, and for that, I will be always grateful. And obviously uh, the Pedro's family's in our thoughts, prayers today. Yep. So um, I felt the same about her personally. Um, so sort of very immediately lovable human being uh, in person in, in terms of the work. Um, I think the, the, the real life angle, the, the, the sort of the real life dimension in her, in her pieces is what is what made it all so shot through with this common sense. Um, a lot of uh, opinion writers think of themselves as sort of writing common sense uh, in the face of fantasy and delusion, but that is really the, the sort of the overriding um, uh, uh, thing that I always I got from her. And just generally speaking, I, my my fascination with her work and my interest and. In, in everything that she wrote came from this. I, I just couldn't get over the writing. The writing is so good. And, and uh, she was one of the people when, uh, whenever I have to, had to write a larger piece uh, for commentary uh, in order to sort of steal my spine and to kind of even sort of remember, okay, wh wh what is good writing again? How do you make ideas uh, clear? And forceful uh, once once they're on the page, uh, and so I would you know sometimes I'd, I'd read reread various pieces, and I would I would sort of read her um, to to sort of recall how you try to do that. Um, so I, I I you know I commend to everyone. There's a there's a blog post up on the site now with a, a list of just a selection, not in, no, nowhere near the the totality of of her work for commentary. 
um, uh, and there are links there and, and you should um, just uh, scroll through it and spend hours um, drinking it all in because it, it is uh, it's just an incredible contribution to American intellectual life. And shows her in extraordinary range. I mean, there's a kind of intellectual that can write so well about so many things. She was one of them. And, and to do that from a perspective, um, she wrote as a woman, do you know what I mean? Not in a kind of identity politics way, but her she brought to bear her own experience, as you say, Abe, at a practical level, but her range was extraordinary. She wrote about so many things so well. It's just, it really was extraordinary. Movies, great, great, great stuff on movies. Yeah, just, yeah. And as Abe said, it's a, like a caustic wit in the best possible way, <clears throat> just crafting prose that you have to think about for two or three minutes to realize is actually a really incisive insult. <laughs> but it didn't come off that way in the moment when you read it just come back to you oh okay yeah that was actually a really uh, clever turn of phrase so um, we will be talking about Mitch Decker throughout the week um, but for now um, just want to uh, extend our condolences to uh, Decker's and the Pothorts family and we will be thinking about them and talking about them moving forward but there is news to discuss um, Eli I want to get your take on this in particular, um, we haven't been focusing very much on the uh, war in Europe, in part because it has seemed so stalemated. Um, but there is movement. Uh, there is more movement on the ground than I think we've been willing to devote uh, much focus to, in part because it's it's at a very granular level now and kind of slow moving. But on the, on the domestic front yesterday, uh, Joe Biden signed into law a um, revitalized version of the 1941 Lend-Lease Act focusing on Ukraine, providing uh, weapons, fuel, and food to Ukraine, and just eliminating a lot of the red tape that delays some of those uh, shipments. And if there's a comparison to be made to the 1941 Lend-Lease Act, it strikes me that there is um, a serious dearth of opposition to it. Um, Lend-Lease was profoundly controversial in 1941. Uh, it was uh, seen as escalatory. It was seen as committing the United States to uh, the allied side of the of the war effort in a way that the isolationist wing of particularly the Republican Party uh, rejected. Um, you know, there was there were tactical objections, Bob Taft in particular, very famously saying, you know, lending lending war equipment is like lending gum. You don't want it back afterwards, um, paraphrasing him. And you just don't see any of that today. All of 10 Republicans in the House voted against this, um, most of them with the, the MAGA wing of the GOP, but a couple of them were principled up as opponents of anything and everything that has to do with projecting American power like Tom Massey. Um, but generally, just kind of passed. It's very it's very quiet. I think the, there seems to be a real a durable consensus uh, in this country uh, across both parties uh, in favor of doing everything and everything, anything and everything we possibly can to support Ukraine's war effort, and this is just the latest step. Well, I think one striking thing or difference between FDR's Lend-Lease and Joe Biden's Lend-Lease is that we now, with the benefit of um, sort of hindsight and history, understand that FDR did believe eventually America needed to actually intervene in World War II, and that Lend-Lease in some ways was the camel's nose under the tent. And that this was the, the other big criticism from the America First crowd, the isolationists, was that you're going to get us into a war. 
my view is that most, I think, particularly American leaders and politicians understand that Joe Biden really doesn't want to get into a war. So that the act of supplying Ukrainians is not seen as a way to sort of further entangle us in this conflict, but rather as a substitute for any kind of direct engagement with Russia in the conflict. And that that's why you're able to see this kind of bipartisan consensus around arming uh, and, and supplying the Ukrainians because, you know, I mean, we, we kind of know where Biden is on this. He, he's trying his best to not, he, you know, he has been slow in many ways to um, meet the moment. And I want to credit him for getting the policy right. And I'm willing to sort of say in the beginning of this war, I was, um, you know, I was one of the people who were sort of beginning to ask these questions about you no know, fly zones and when, when, what's the limit? When do we get involved? Why aren't we doing more? But I think the administration has, um, has kind of figured some things out here and particularly um, with regards to some of the stuff that has recently been reported by the New York Times and other papers uh, with regards to electronic warfare, intelligence assistance, that we're seeing a lot from the administration that's short of the war. And so far, um, it has been uh, able to, along with the um, sort of resilience and courage and brilliance of the Ukrainian military, uh, it's been able to really beat back a lot of these Russian offenses. And hopefully that will be enough. Um, but I think that we're able to sort of see this sort of broad support for the new lend lease because it's pretty clear that Biden doesn't want to go any further. I think sort of our, our dueling perspectives here mirror a weird phenomenon in, in, in which, you know, over the course of the last two and a half months or so, however long this has been going on, this, the, the conflict has gotten less controversial, not more. In the beginning of yeah. the conflict, you were a little bit more, and not to mischaracterize you and interrupt me if I am, but a little bit more pro-engagement. Um, yep. And I was very reticent, cautious of uh, escalatory behaviors and the ways in which Russia could retaliate um, and had the cascading effect that could unleash. Uh, so the big difference between 1941 and, and 2022 is that Nazi Germany actually had the capacity to interdict shipments in the North Atlantic, right? They yeah. actually had the ability to get the United States engaged in, in a military conflict because we were transporting uh, this military, um, this material well, to well, the, the Soviet well, the, Union and Britain. The Russians have other things they can do to, to try to deter us. I mean, they, we haven't seen the kind of massive cyber escalation that a lot of us predicted. So they're thinking, I mean, you're but right. That's about they can't, it. They, well, what's yeah, the kinetic, they, what's the kinetic response? Well, the kinetic response in terms of preventing these shipments, I, I don't think they have that capability, that, that, that capacity, but they, I certainly they, did. Have the, they, they certainly have the ability to use chemical weapons. They certainly have the ability to God forbid, use a tactical nuclear weapon. I mean, there are things that they can do kinetically that would be an escalation in response to but you're right, they don't have the ability to probably cut off these supply lines, which is really important. Uh, there's another difference, though. Uh, I mean, there's many differences, but but I think an important one in that um, on the eve of the Second World War, the, the first horrible world war right. was not that far in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, this is for us, this, this so shocks uh, the, the American viewer uh, and, and conscience, because we, we haven't seen something like this in, in, you know, for many of us in our lifetime. 
Well, a lot of, well, there's a lot of people who think that we have, right? Who de- who describe the post 9/11 wars as being that level of trauma of of you know have of dis- dispiriting the uh, the national psyche and <clears throat> making us more reluctant to engage in military conflict, right? And I think that probably is significantly overblown, although it's it was certainly a measurable phenomenon. And there was no home front. There was no home front mobilization for those wars in the way that there was for World War II. No, and it was the the engagement. Yeah, I mean, and just in the scale, I mean, there's no comparison, of course. Um, But there was a certain Vietnam syndrome that we experienced after Iraq, but it was really overblown, Eli. I totally agree. Um, And, you know, it mostly existed in the minds of opinion writers. We have a volunteer military. And what you ended up having was, uh, at first, the Democrats and weirdly today, a segment of the Republican Party that became in some ways like the activist advocates for people who had volunteered for the military and that they were treated in the same way that you would treat a kind of interest group. Like, why are you putting them in some sort of risk? Why are you know, you don't care about these soldiers and the separation and that, that this was a sort of the focus of a lot of the politics of Democrats in the first years of the war on terror and the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and later became kind of the talking point of the right. Um, and in some ways, I always thought this was so condescending to people who volunteered to serve in the military and believed that they were fighting for something that was greater because it was, only, it was, it was always sort of reduced to the harm, the risk. And there was, and we sort of forgot to talk about the honor of the cause and the good that was being done. And also, there we forgot to articulate what a victory was like and what fair expectations for deployments were like and how long we would be engaged. And as a result, we slipped into this kind of rhetoric. But I think, you know, Abe, you're absolutely right. World War I was horrific. It affected every American. The United States had so many people who had returned from that war that were maimed and injured and crippled. And in that respect, it was sort of a part of life. People understood how horror of a European, another European war in a way that they can't really know, except for those of us who remember 9-11 of sort of what it, what it, what the other, because it was very easy for us to just sort of not think about what it was like for those soldiers. And then they became these props for those who wanted to end the war. I mean, you mentioned um, <clears throat> can't envision victory. And I, I, you know, we should probably spend a minute trying to figure out what that looks like because I certainly can't. Um, you see some uh, fighters on the front lines in Ukraine um, with, you know, a galvanizing resolve to take the fight all the way to the, the, into Donbass, to liberate Donbass, to take it to Crimea, to take it into Russia proper. And they're all full of, full of vinegar. Um, but obviously, you know, you hear Kiev making noises to this extent that a negotiated solution is, has to be in the offing somewhere. It's impossible to imagine how that, what the contours of that solution looks like, much less what the negotiations would look like. I mean, we haven't been talking about negotiations between these two parties since I think March um, was perhaps the last time real, you know, bilateral talks were engaged and and collapsed, subsequently collapsed, in part because Ukraine has been pushing back so successfully against the Russian position. But the more Ukraine uh, wins tactical victories, the more obviously Russia will have to engage in some sort of shift in the strategic calculation, which is what everybody talks about when they talk about the use of non-conventional weapons, which by the way, Eli, we should stop talking about tactical nukes as other tactical nukes. They're not tactical if they're used to achieve strategic aims. 
Um, okay, it would be enough. a strategic. That's a, that's a that's a fair point. It would be a strategic a lower yield, low maybe. yield strategic nuclear yeah. weapon. Yeah, right. Um, which is it just as which is perhaps staying Russia's hand as much as it is uh, the West's uh, in understanding of what strategic nuclear warfare, the prospect thereof. Um, is is just as terrifying to the Kremlin as it should be as anybody else, unless they've completely lost their minds. But um, and that doesn't seem like they have lost their minds, this is, which is kind of an important thing to say because we've been operating under the cons- under the assumption that the Kremlin is using a different set of metrics than we have access to to gauge its its decision making processes because otherwise we couldn't possibly understand them. So there's two calculations there: either they know something we don't, or they're absolutely nuts. Um, and it doesn't seem like they're nuts. Uh, and so we can begin to see the outlines of some sort of a negotiated solution. But Ukraine, Ukrainian positions are pushing into Donbass. They are pushing into areas occupied since 2014. We can't ask them to withdraw. We shouldn't. And if they can maintain and hold these gains, we should support that. But that makes victory a much more distant prospect, at least a negotiated ceasefire. There's also the there's also just the general challenge of what the inevitable complacency on the part both of America's Americans attention span about this conflict and um, and Europe's attention span about this conflict, too. I mean, we do you know, we're getting into a pre uh, election cycle and into the summer. And uh, Clarissa Ward, who's done some extraordinary reporting on the ground there was interviewed, uh, I think, last night or the day before and just said she's worried about this. She's like, this conflict needs to be on the front page every day, all day. And people constantly reminded that this war is not it's not cooling. It's not calming down. We're nowhere closer to a solution and people are dying every day. And I think that that um, complacency problem is going to be particularly important with regard to the Biden administration's policy, because we he, we do not have, I at least do not have a lot of confidence in this administration's ability to juggle multiple conflicts at once, whether they be at home domestically with inflation and economic woes, with upcoming elections. Now you, we've got Roe v. Wade and abortion on the table um, and this continuing conflict. So I, I worry that, that the public pressure and the public attention to this is actually crucial in terms of the policy making, or at least the the response to political motivation that the Biden administration needs to keep its eye on the ball. You know, there's something happening with, with the with the global attention being paid to to the to the war in Ukraine. That's it's very tricky. I'm not knocking it, but with all these uh, visits by heads of state or by Jill Biden, then you saw U2 went over there and like played some uh, Stand By Me, I think, with a Ukrainian soldier in what I guess looked like a train station or something. I don't know. Um, It's sort of, I mean, it's good because it's all about drawing attention to it and, and, and supporting Ukraine, but there's a way in which you can begin to, um, sort of uh, just kind of pay a pay a sort of a, 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 a sort of a fee to, to show you've paid attention and then just keep moving and move on uh, you know and, and sort of accept the reality of it. It's like USA for Africa. Yeah. And it papers over a lot of the like, look, there's a lot of disagreement among the Europeans about the energy policy they should be having towards Russia. There's still disagreement about sanctions with some of these countries. I mean, the idea that the whole West is united against Russia is actually a fiction. And that will continue to shift based on how Russian military policy 
uh, goes forward. And also the Russians aren't always rational when it comes to, I mean, we know this, it's not that they're necessarily going to go rogue and use nuclear weapons, but they're also not always making rational decisions, um, at least from the standpoint of how we would uh, want to game it out. Yeah, but can I say on the bright side and, uh, you know, one way to maybe look at victory is that the Russian army appears to be breaking. There has been a sort of stream of a few reports recently, some from Western anal analysis. I mean, the Pentagon, I think there were background statements to this effect that said that there were uh, lots of defiance on the sort of conscripts who now are fighting the war on the Russian side, that they were not following orders, that there were defections, that um, they have suffered these losses. And that has really made it difficult for the army to function. Breaking the Russian army, I think, would be one at least component of a um, victory condition, and it's one that seems to be in reach. Seems to be in reach, but the enemy gets a vote. Um, well, it, it, you're right, but I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's, isn't it interesting that Vladimir Putin yesterday in this victory day speech didn't do the things that people thought he would do, meaning mainly that he would he would either announce a sort of new round of conscription or kind of draft and anything. Right. Like and why and why wouldn't you? Because well, I think conscription is absolutely desperately necessary. Meet at the meet at the front is absolutely desperately necessary. So why wouldn't you do that unless you're concerned well, for the stability of the regime? Well, that's what I'm saying. Why wouldn't you do it? Because he's already sending these conscripts and they're already defecting and defying, so to speak. So in that respect, there is a kind of understanding, maybe maybe sort of a recognition of the reality of it, that he can't do, he can't just press a button, he can't just sort of make a, uh, you know, sort of or make a, you know, give orders and then have that necessarily come out. I think that he understands enough that, um, that his own army and his own plans are in serious, serious trouble. Remember, the other, there was a great New York Times piece, I think, yesterday, that a lot of the Russian initial strategy kind of assumed there would be a lot of collaboration from Ukrainians, especially Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East, and it didn't happen. And they're they're floundering. They don't know what's they don't know what to do. And as a result, I think that their army really is breaking, and that's a wonderful thing. But there's two elements to this. Um, the, yeah. the say obviously, we are very reluctant to be seen as putting any pressure on Kiev to seek a negotiated solution. There's even talk in this New York Times article about, um, you know, the Lend-Lease, about how we want to, you know, soft pedal this, Soto Voce, because we don't want to take anything away from Ukrainian efforts, um, heroic, incredible efforts to resist the Russian onslaught. That strikes me as absolute nonsense, right? At no point did Lend-Lease take anything away from British resolve to withstand the no, blitz. Bolster. It didn't it didn't detract yeah. at all from the Soviet Union's efforts to withstand the Russian onslaught in 41, 42. I mean, that's just nonsense. Well, at the same time, though, I, I, you know, I was worried that there would be pressure from the Biden White House to kind of have the Ukrainians accept some kind of deal that would freeze the conflict. And we really, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I'm not. I don't think that, that can be off the table. I don't, I don't foresee. I'm not saying other. it's off the table. I think that it's, maybe it is, but I'm saying that we haven't seen what I, I would think would be sort of the, you know, behind the scenes kind of arm twisting. I mean, similar to what you would see, what you saw like in 2006 with the Israel-Lebanon war, where after a certain point, there was a moment where they said to the prime minister, Ehud Olmer, all right, time to wrap it up. None of that's happened. And it seems to be that the strategic goal right now is to just batter the Russian military. The Biden 
Biden officials, Biden himself has said as much that, you know, that this is an opportunity to really kind of give them a black eye. And that seems to be the plan for now. And so far, so good. Meanwhile, back at the domestic front. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the uh, war in the streets over the draft decision of a uh, Supreme Court uh, decision that would overturn Roe v. Wade and the precedents in Casey continues to royal. Yesterday, the Senate uh, passed a bill uh, providing security to the members, uh, the family members of Supreme Court justices who find themselves in the crosshairs. Uh, Senators John Cornyn and Chris Coons' bipartisan bill passed with unanimous consent, no objections from the senators um, uh, resolving to uh, condemn threats to physical safety of Supreme Court justices and their families in the effort to influence decisions of the independent judiciary. Good move, bold move, and desperately necessary move because um, as Jen Psaki, uh, White House press secretary, um, tacitly conceded, it's not just passion we're seeing in the streets. Um, there's a real menace. There's a real menace to a lot of these protests that are uh, erupting in front of people's homes, which is in Virginia, at least illegal. Um, and this is an effort to extend that. There's also, uh, can I just, you know, this is my, I, I was all, I'm still wound up about it, even, even though some time has passed, but there's a lot of splitting hairs here among the left about what is uh, appropriate and what is not. So as soon as we see people outside other people's homes, it's, well, as long as they're not inciting violence, as long as they're not issuing actual threats or right. people are applying the Brandenburg test right. to these right. protests. So I'm like, okay, but standing outside someone's home where someone has young children in the house with a bullhorn saying F you, which is what they're shouting, screaming nonstop, that's intimidating. That's in the general sense of how people understand intimidation techniques. That's certainly one. I don't know if it, it it might not meet the legal bar, but in terms of civility, that's it. The other thing is that I've seen several commentators on the left say, you know what, civility is all well and good, but when we're in the right and this and the stakes are this high, we have to set that stuff aside because the other side doesn't care about it. So we can't either. I mean, the we we talked a little bit about this escalatory stuff. I will say the there there've also been like there was a Twitter rumor that Alito had to flee his house that hasn't been confirmed, but his home. Anyone who doesn't live in Virginia and is a Supreme Court justice of a conservative bent has had protesters outside his home. So that, and, and that hasn't let up. And again, like people should protest if they feel strongly about this, but do it in front of the court. Why are you threatening people's families? And even the Washington Post editorial page came down on the side of let's not do this. Let's not escalate our the way that we protest uh, ideas in this country by targeting people's private lives, targeting their homes in a way that's destructive. This has, though, been a tactic of the left for a very long time. This isn't new. We've seen this before, but I think now it's getting a kind personal of- Personal is political. Yes, and the cultural imprimatur of all the mainstream institutions is now on the side of doing this, and that's bad for the country. Interesting, though- I'm sorry, continue. That you didn't see the, um, the, the Washington Post, for example, um, come, come out against- the early days of the post George Floyd uh, chaos, right? There was, to the extent that that there was any acknowledgement, oh, it was of righteous anger, righteous, righteous anger, anger yeah. except for like you know, uh, people who seemed to crash the 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 proceedings and turned it into a, you know violent violent uh, undertaking for their own ends. But do you remember the, uh, even that where we knew that Antifa was sending people, you know, even to Kenosha, Wisconsin, that even then there was this effort among 
very serious people at you know, the Brookings Institution to try to explain to people that there was no such thing as an Antifa as an organization. It was just an ideology and it was unfair to Antifa that just wanted to oppose fascism. And it's fascinating to me. So they were basically saying what Tucker Carlson implies that there was a false flag operation that they were saying under George Floyd that there were right-wing people who were causing violence as provocateurs in the same way that, you know, we see some of the MAGA types saying that there were, you know, feds provoking violence on January 6th. And now that um, there really is menace in the air and this report uh, has been confirmed, there was a Molotov cocktail thrown at a, uh, uh, an anti-abortion group Wisconsin. The, or, the, in Wisconsin. And the group that now has claimed credit called, I think, the People of Jane or something like that. Um, you know, they've, they've threatened more violence. They've said, unless other anti-abortion groups break down, where in every city, you'll see more attacks. And the media has described it all in the passive voice. Notice, a fire broke out is how they described this. Right. It was a political playbook. A, I saw a, that. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. That you mentioned that was actually a really interesting um, uh, parallel that you raised there with the Antifa um, <clears throat> being sort of this diffuse uh Right, a thing like a phenomenon that's just completely organic, and that that arose from testimony that I think Chris Ray, uh, the FBI director, delivered to Congress, where he was asked, you know, about Antifa and and said this is just basically an ideology, and that was taken by the proponents of Antifa's anti-fascist uh, agitation, the punch and Nazi types, uh, to to mean that the the threat was overblown, when what he was saying was precisely the opposite, that the threat was profound and unpoliceable because it didn't, it wasn't organized. It wasn't an organization or individuals that could be infiltrated and, and surveilled and disrupted and their finances targeted. You couldn't do any of that because it was just in the ether, which it's makes also, it that much more difficult to police. It also wasn't the case in at many cities that the people who would turn out for, for Black Lives Matter protests weren't also the people who then, as the night wore on, this is what exactly what happened in Washington, D.C., people who marched to the protest then went on a looting spree all over the city. Right. They were often the same people. It was not the case that this was some infiltration from outside Antifa. These were a home. These were local people. They knew every pharmacy to hit. They knew some of them were also organized criminal activity because they knew the cops were distracted. But not in D.C. It was there was a both and quality to it. I have friends in law enforcement and I asked them these questions. They're like, yeah, I mean, it was opportunistic in some ways, but it was also the same people who were out there fighting for justice would turn around. Not most, but some. Look, I, I think I'll just say it, the, the big difference, why you're seeing some people sort of on the left tap the brakes on what's happening now and why you didn't see it then um, is it comes down to liberal racism. Uh, when black Americans were involved, there was this left idea. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't how they articulated it, but, but, but the sentiment was, well, you can't expect them not to riot, not to loot. Come on. That's very true. Well, I think, I think a, another factor was that when we talk about the idea of norm violations, it's often meant as a way of saying, aha, another norm violation. This is very bad. We need to get back to norms. But norm violations are appropriate, you know, if you're living in, you know, Nazi Germany. Norm violations are appropriate if the norms allow some great injustice. And the problem is, is that you have millions of Americans now on both sides that believe that the norms indeed should be violated. 
And so even when you have voices like the Washington Post saying, please don't do this, this isn't right. And even when you have conversations like ours, which is you know, very much kind of in a, you know, we, we're having an elite conversation with other others and that the name of the game when we do it is to sort of say, aha, you don't police your side and look what they do. But there are a lot of people who don't care about that because they believe that we're at this breaking point. And if they don't take to the streets, if they don't become uncivil, if they don't maybe even turn to violence, then we will have you know, a, a turning back the clock in many states that will uh, you know, obviously restrict uh, a very important freedom for women and that that is unacceptable. Or if we don't, if we don't, if we don't, if we don't protest this way, if we don't riot in the streets, then you know we will have an out of control racist police force killing you know people. But of there's color. A, that's true, and there's too few people saying what I hope. I mean, I think this podcast in particular has said consistently, which is it's bad when either side does it. It's bad yep. when you feel the urgency so much that you start battering cops and storming the Capitol. It's bad when you start burning down people's businesses and killing people and looting. Like it's bad that that this is not the way we should express our our dissatisfaction with the system. But I think the number on both sides who are uh, compelled to justify it now has grown at least in the past. And 10, they're not going to be swayed by the leadership that we are, we've, we've come to kind of expect to, 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 to reign in their side. In fact, the, the more that moderate Democrats, the more Jen Psaki says, maybe don't do this, the, 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 the more people are saying, what are you talking about? Civility is just another word for white supremacy or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> to, you know, focus too, too much on our own irrelevance is to succumb to madness. Uh, you know, don't necessarily want to want to dwell on that and, and give credit where credit is due, because even though I'm sure that these people aren't hanging on the words of the Washington Post editorial page, it is nevertheless welcome, albeit belated, to acknowledge, as they did, that this is a species of totalitarianism. Let me say that very plainly, by definition, the program that eliminates the distinctions between the private and public spaces is totalitarian because its program is total. Uh, that is extremely welcome as an admission from a, an organ that is ideologically sympathetic to what these people are doing in the streets, even if the tactics are a little gauche. Um, that acknowledges that there is excess on their side to a degree that can transform this otherwise valuable mov movement into something wholly irredeemable. Um, and so good for them for doing it. I mean, we're not gonna see very much of that from anywhere outside the very respectable discourse that we tend to focus on. Um, but respectable discourse still has a lot of people who pay attention to it. And uh, particularly when the alternative is very irresponsible discourse, I think it becomes a very valuable poll in the debate. We've exhausted this topic. Now it's time for shameless plugs. <laughs> Eli Lake, thank you so much for joining us. You have a new podcast. It's called. Yes, it's called The Reeducation. There are now six episodes up. Um, I haven't listened to any yet, but I'm extremely excited. Well, I, for I would your love episode to get your on feedback, but uh, I would say I Christine, did. It's great. You did. Which and, one did you have? The War on Comedy and the History of Neoconservative Political Thought are calling my name. Oh no! I, I listened to um, Eli's podcast on. Um, uh, Good art artists, artists, bad people. Yeah. Bad people yeah. who make good oh, art. The, yes. Episode and vice five. versa. Yes. And the latest Poor one, Kenny and G. by the way, I would, I would say uh, Christine has been on uh, a guest. I will have the two of you. John Pedaritz was a guest on the neoconservative one. Today's episode is all about public apologies and why we should hmm. accept them. And I get into, I think, a cool story 
about Jesse Jackson and his infamous Jaime Town remarks from 1984. And I have my guest as Abe Foxman who reached out to Jesse Jackson and worked with him. And there are a lot of things we can say about Jesse Jackson. He's by no means uh, a flawless kind of public figure, but after Abe Foxman's intervention, more than 30 years ago, Jesse Jackson has really was, has been consistently a foe of anti-Semitism. And the point of the latest episode is to sort of say that you can get a lot more if you, um, instead of canceling somebody who um, says something that is offensive to a group, you uh, seek to try to educate them and turn their heart and accept their apology. That's fascinating. Well, I will be listening later today, hopefully, as I get to mow my lawn. Um, which is very overgrown. Uh, I'm going to put in a plug for myself. Listeners, you know that I've been banging this drum for a while, but it's time to act. Go and pre-order my new book, The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. I sincerely request that you consider a pre-order because pre-orders are very important to the, to the uh, publisher. And it's a very fun book. It's a valuable book. It explores a lot of the totalitarianism that we've been talking about, the decimation of the distinctions between the private and the public space, particularly in regards to activities that used to be apolitical, that should be apolitical. From the food you eat, to the comedy you enjoy, to the television you watch, to the sex you have, or increasingly don't, there's an ideology at work that is making these activities more political and less fun. So please go consider pre-ordering this book. If all of you do it, I'll make out my advance. So I sincerely appreciate that. Uh, I just say, if you know, if you've ever watched a TV show lately and been like, why is this little political monologue interjected into here? And you wonder how that happened. You've got to read Noah's book because it explains it. It really does. It really does explain how we got here because it happened very quickly for people and they were kind of unaware it was going on at the time. Right. And the subtlety is gone now because they don't trust you with subtle messages. You have to be beaten over the (laughs) head with a plottingly didactic narrative in all and everything. And it is very puritanical. Uh, and the I thought this was about Julia Childs. What are we doing talking about drag queens? <laughs> We're back to How'd that get into this series? What's going on you here? Must Why respect am I the drag about queens, the gender Eli. binary? I thought this was about Julia Childs. Anyway, <laughs> true story. That's it. That's in the show. Yes, anyway. it is. It's fascinating. Well, anyway, thank you, Eli Lake, for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Uh, we will be back uh, mostly likely tomorrow, but we'll have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> uh, for Eli. Abe, Christine, and the absent John Podhoritz, whose family is in our thoughts. I'm Noah Rothman. Keep the candle burning.